um, it's the Shegulola Salami. Um, it's the Shegulola Salami show. It's a podcast show set in a virtual cafe, and I'm your host, Shegulola Salami. If this is your first time listening to the show, hello, thanks for tuning in. I hope you find the show entertaining, motivational, inspiring, and hopefully you'll learn something new, but I'm almost certain you will you'll discover a new book um today it's a really nice sunny day in london but then i've got a head cold so i think you can hear that in my voice so please pardon me for the way i sound it's it's a head cold hay fever and i've just been drowning myself in loads of different medications to try and manage my symptoms um so i'm just having some lemon water right now to sort of try and clear my head cold so hopefully i've got someone who will do most of the talking today and hopefully you'll gain something new from listening to him so who have i got in the virtual cafe with me today hello siglola thank you for having me this is robert thor i'm an author i have a book called injust injustice it's um to play off of the boy band in sync i uh, have been in business for many decades working with um, in business for helping retirees get uh, government assistance. And one of the companies we had been working with wound up being the um, Lou Perlman, the, the fellow that uh, boy band uh, mogul that was a Ponzi. So what essentially the book is, it's my autobiography and it's about my life growing up in New York and going ahead and my life experiences overcoming different things not only in health related to health situations but also in business when you have a catastrophic event that you can bounce back and actually do and achieve a lot of really really fun and great things and you actually open up and you have clear vision kind of and how helping people i do a lot of missions work in nicaragua and cuba helping less fortunate people but it was an interesting ride along with that one segment of work with all these bands and so it kind of has an interesting twist in it you know putting this in perspective of life and going through um you know just life you know and um so i hope you enjoy our little cafe i'm gonna have a cappuccino fabulous um i'm quite interested in chatting with you because i heard unsync but yes what would you like to have with your cappuccino i'm gonna have a well no can i change it to a scones and cream tea <laughs> that was going to bring a smile to my face. <laughs> I used to date a girl named Elizabeth, not bloody Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> not the Queen, but you know, from Bournemouth. So that's on the south coast. So we yes. did a lot of scones and cream tea and these little priories. It's really fun. I love London. Yay! <laughs> They're amazing, right? Like the first time I had them ever in my life. I felt like I died and went to heaven. Yeah, so good. And the jams and, and actually, believe it or not, because I, I live in sunny Florida, it's actually nice to have rainy days, you know, 
But sometimes in London, it's a little bit much. It's incredible sometimes. A lot of rain. Oh, it's not so much that we mind the rain. It's like the rain doesn't know what it wants to do, right? It's mm. if it wants to rain, we're happy. Okay, we know it is raining. Great, it's raining. That's fine. If it wants to, you know, whatever the weather is, but it's like, oh, I think it's like a really, it's a really stroppy teenager, right? I want to rain today, but actually, no, I'm not really sure. It's like a hormonal teenager. And it starts to rain. It's just a drizzle. We can handle it. And then it's like within two minutes, it changes its mind and the sun is out. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm about to die from this heat, right? And then just as you're like, okay, great. Let me just take off some layers. It then starts getting freezing cold. And you're like, I'm sorry, what's going on? The weather can't make up its mind. <laughs> yes. That's the major problem we have. <laughs> well, actually, I have with London's weather. Yeah, here it's, you know, it's pretty warm most of the time, you know. <laughs> and, and then um, it's just an occasional hurricane we have to deal with in this, our weather. <laughs> well, I'm glad we don't have that. Yes, yes. It would be a bummer to have hurricanes in London. <laughs> Yes, no, we don't want that. You guys can have your lovely weather. We will, we will make do with our rain. Mm -hmm. And we have to deal with the sand in our ears at the beach. I'm going to walk to be worse, right? <laughs> okay, and the bikinis. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Don't rub it in. Don't rub it in. <laughs> but, you know, I'm quite interested. Tell me about your book. How did you... How is your autobiography, and you said something about, was it NSYNC? Those are like, that's the boy band from the 90s. Yes, um, what happened was we were involved with this bloke, Lou Perlman, and um, on a business level, you know, for one of the investments for our clients. And we had gone ahead and done all kinds of due diligence with our attorneys and such and such, and you know, everything seemed to be squeaky clean, but unknowingly, it, was, it wound up being a Ponzi. But all of our clients that invested these funds in this company called Transcontinental, well, they wound up funding all these boy bands. So uh, when the Backstreet Boys broke in Europe and then in the States, and then soon after that in sync, well, these, you know, and I've seen these boys in Orlando when they were little kids. They're men now. <laughs> and um, so they, you know, would drive the limo or, you know, we, they're just normal kids, fun, loving American boys. And um, so it was really cool to see the success and everything was really cool. But unknowingly, it was a big house of cards. And it really took and hurt so many people. And one of the things, the main thrust for my book is obviously to tell my side of the story. And um, we had never been indicted or anything. We were a subject. My business partner was also my wife. So um, I'm single now because it, it took its toll on us because when you're under all kinds of investigations, the stress, you know, it's, it was just a lot. And so, um, unfortunately that was the biggest, you know, um, casualty 
because, um, you know, it's your lifelong partner. You try to set up your life like that, but it, it does happen. Okay. So with the Ponzi, um, Sorry, Robert, can I just stop you there, right? Yes. I feel like this is amazing. This is like really juicy gossip. I feel like mm. I'm a Hollywood reporter and I'm just getting the back scoop. So I've got baby brain, right? So let us just start from the very beginning, right? Just thinking that I'm very slow, right? Because I've got this head cold, baby brain. You know, let me just, I want to make sure I enjoy this gist, right? Okay, yeah. so you set up this business with your wife or your ex-wife. What exactly was it that you were doing? What was your role? What we do is when someone in, in their older years, when they can't live at home any longer, they usually have, you know, we have nursing homes, okay. but it's quite costly. It's, you know, in U.S. dollars, it's between 8000 to $12,000 per month. So what we do is we go ahead and get them on to, we call it Medicaid, which is a government assistance program. So we shelter their estate and get Medicaid. And so we would be using at that time, going back to the 90s, there was a product that we set up essentially to protect some assets for our clients so they could get government assistance. And so, um, and we, the odd, you know, the, the irony of it is, you know, because we were marketing and then our, at that time, we were just financial planners. Ooh. So we go ahead and refer to our elder law attorneys. We worked with elder law attorneys. So they would go ahead and get hired by usually the person that's in the nursing home, son or daughter, and then would go ahead and pick out the product. And a lot of the times it was this transcontinental, this, you know, Lou Perlman product. And so there you have it. So we, we uh, would go ahead and get our clients on Medicaid and sometimes they would use this product and that's where it got dicey once we wound up shutting down. We actually put Lou Perlman in prison. Wow. Okay. I don't know if you remember, he was on the run. They were looking for him. He was, you know, on the run. <laughs> he was, they found him in Tahiti. <laughs> it's like the weirdest thing. So how did that you know, with um, Backstreet and all the musicians then, how did you get involved with them? Well, you know, because of the funding, uh, you know, our clients said we'd go to Orlando on different events, parties, concerts, you know, um, things like that, social events. Not only was Lou a, um, you know, business, you know, person that I did business with, but we also had kind of like a friend, like an older brother relationship. He was like the same age as my oldest brother, Raymond. And so, and we were both from New York. So we hit it off as far as, you know, that. And the, my kids called him Uncle Lou and, you know, kind of like that. It was, he made you feel kind of like family. You know, yeah. he had a great way of making you feel really special. Okay, so that's how you got into business with him. Yeah, well, I met a, one of his people that worked for him, Michael Crudelli, on a, because uh, like I said, Lou Perlman's product was one of many. So we were on a convention in Chicago, and I met this guy, Michael Crudelli, and he introduced us to Lou, and over in Sands Lake in Orlando, and then from there, we did due diligence with our attorneys and 
and everything started from there. And then the Backstreet Boys were kind of like, I felt really bad at that time because we got a lot of, you know, heat from when are we going to hear about the Backstreet Boys, the Backstreet Boys. And so, yeah, they hit it with quit playing games with my heart Ooh. in the States. How that came about was I had my oldest daughter was born and she was young and we had an au pair from Denmark come in and we picked her up from the airport. On the way in from the airport, I heard for the first time, quit, quit playing games with my heart. <laughs> I bloody don't do justice, love. But you know, but <laughs> yeah. And then she had all these boy band, you know, things, you know, magazine, teen magazines. And then actually while she was in town, uh, we had her meet the Backstreet Boys because there was a bit they were in town for a business meeting. So it was a big ordeal for her because she sent, you know, the pictures and wrote an article and sent it to her hometown in Denmark. So it was kind of a fun thing for her. Yeah. No, that sounds like loads of fun. Yeah. I can imagine the teenage, you know, the teenage version of me enjoying meeting, um, you know, one of my favorite musicians at the time. Um, that would have been so cool. Yeah, and she was like, I found out she was like a groupie, big time. Followed them throughout Europe. It was pretty, <laughs> what a coincidence too. So that was like, she was very excited. Caroline was like, oh. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so all these things then went down, you know, and it wasn't really great. And so that motivated you to write your book. Well, you know, in the journey, because, you know, we worked, we had um, wound up talking with a state investigator. Hmm. and They just wanted to talk to us. There was no investigation on us or anything like that. But there was another agent involved. And peripherally, they mentioned my wife's name. So then um, in that, we had hired immediately a uh, securities attorney and then that was the first time i've ever heard the word ponzi when he said it could be this it could be that it could be a ponzi and i go what you mean potsy from happy days because i i never heard of ponzi so because this is before madoff and all the big you know big things that that have, you know bad things that happened later on that wound up um being revealed and so um you know the bottom line is we uh, cooperated and gave them all of our, you know, clients and it was pretty tough. It was really hard. So like the main thrust for the book was showing, you know, that we, you know, we were innocent. We were just kind of used in this uh, big Ponzi and, you know, through it, you lose trust in people. You know, you, because um, we were deceived, obviously, by Lou Pearlman. And um, so I went with my church to Nicaragua and I started, you know, because you, you know, just to try something out, you know, to help people down there. And I came back a different person. I just wound up doing a lot of those and ultimately wound up doing a lot of uh, mission trips or humanitarian trips on my own with my own teams. And we would do either medical teams, and eventually from that, we would set up and do wells because water, I don't know, in Nigeria, if water is an issue there, but in, in a lot of 
well, the world is actually having, in the United States, we're having problems with water, you yeah. know, clean, palatable water. So we did a lot of wells and helped out a lot of people down there. And then um, in the last two years, I've been going to Cuba and, and doing work in Cuba, which is quite interesting. It's totally different. Yeah. So Good through question. that, yeah, go ahead. Good question. And sometimes, right, I find that sometimes we use words and we think everybody knows what it is. Yes. And I always, so I always say to myself, do the dummies guide too, right? Because, you know, with my daughter, she's four and she's asking me all these questions, right? And I'm like, seriously, how am I supposed to know this, right? <laughs> um, so for those people, and I'm going to raise up my hand, right? Just to make it easy, right? What yes. is a clumsy skim? It's when there's, it's like a house of cards. It's when you're taking in money and they're, and usually they have some kind of um, legitimate looking paperwork, obviously, or else they, they wouldn't be a Ponzi because you, it's got to be believable, you know. This, so there, in this case, with Lou, he had created an employee investment savings account through the company Transcontinental. Mm-hmm. And so what he would do is say, well, we could let you in, even though you're not an employee, we'll gift you, you know, you get a, sh- a stock, a share of stock, and then you would be able to get in the investment and then get, you know, pretty much like annuities with insurance companies, a very competitive rate, nothing out of the norm. And so um, where he did shine, where a lot of our clients and attorneys liked is that the penalties were better. Because a lot of the times when you invest in annuities, um, there are a lot of penalties. What's so, annuity? Annuity is kind of almost like a CD or something like that, um, but through insurance companies, and they're usually longer terms. I feel like I'm getting investment lessons now. Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, and actually what one of our attorneys did was go ahead and create a private annuity, which is in the States very, you know, it's, a, it's done through contracts. It's something that you could do, but that was the kind of wrapper to a candy to the transcontinental investment. And that made it uh, fly with the government for approval. So that's why we were doing a lot of those because people liked it because if the one thing to remember is it's just that they had less penalties. That's why they really liked the Lou Pearlman's product. Right, okay. So I remember reading um, a joke on Facebook once, right? And I think, and please, you know, do correct me if this does not explain Ponzi scheme at all, right? But I thought it was quite funny um, there's this joke that I read. So this man, <coughs> excuse me, he goes to a village, right? Where there are loads of monkeys just playing around, right? right. So he says to the villagers, I'm going to buy one monkey from you for $10, right? And, you know, the villagers were looking at him thinking, you're crazy, there are loads of monkeys, you know, um, you know, playing around, go and get it. But it was like, I'll pay you $10 for each monkey um, I buy from you. So the first villager goes, gets one monkey, gives it to him. 
and he pays the villager 10, you know, $10, right? When the other villagers see him, you know, they then go and start getting their own monkeys. And then he goes, I will buy one monkey from you for $50, right? And all the villagers' eyes then start getting, oh my God, oh my God. So he then buys these monkeys from them for $50. Then more villagers were interested and they got involved. And he then said, I will pay you $100 for one monkey. And, you know, he was then selling them. And then he now goes and says, I have to go away. But when I come back, I will buy one monkey from you for $1,000. Right? Now, at this point, they've sold all the monkeys that they had available, right? Right. To the man. And he's saying he has to go away for business. But when he comes back, he will buy any additional monkeys he ha- they have for $1,000, right? Bearing in mind that the last time he bought anything was $100, right? So they were all really excited and they were all, so he went, goes away. Now they were wondering what they were going to do to get more monkeys. Now the employees of the man who had the monkeys that they had sold to him then said to them, they didn't know that these people were the employees of the man, right? He now goes, okay, well, we've got these monkeys. We want to sell them to you for $700, right? So the villagers were happy because they think that's $300 profit, right? So they then start buying all these monkeys. So these are the monkeys that they originally sold to the man. They started buying these monkeys back from from the man's employees for $700, right? So they bought it and then they were eagerly waiting for when he would come back so that they could sell it for a thousand dollars. They were waiting and they were waiting and they were waiting. (laughs) Does that explain a Ponzi scheme? Well, it's kind of a a way to bring uh, stock prices up. (laughs) That's definitely, (laughs) but usually it's a, they would be buying you know, like a good investment, what they thought was a really good investment. And then it just wound up being monies that were there and there was no investment, you know, you know, there, in other words, kind of like Madoff and Perlman and all these other ones that, because they pop up all the time these days is that, you know, there, there wasn't, it's not what, it's fraud. It's not what they say it is. And so, and the sad thing about that is, is that if you ever, here's the thing, say, for example, you did invest. Okay. Say, you know, $20,000 and then you had it for a couple of years, you got out of it. And then when the, when, when this went down with the Ponzi, they see your account the monies that you got back out of the account and interest belong to the Ponzi, even though it was your money, the $20,000 and the interest, because it, it was really somebody else's money in the group because they were paying Peter to pay Paul. You know, they were, you know, they, that's why they always have to have monies coming in so that, um, and Lou obviously exploited the boy bands to the fullest to get, more investors and more investors so yeah interesting interesting, interesting yeah so how long did it take but you? i like the monkey business 
Sorry? And I did with Lou. I actually got to meet the, well, the lead singer for the Monkees. <laughs> he was managing them. See, one of the things, he managed a lot of different bands at, at any given point outside of making the boy bands. So it's funny you brought up this monkey business. And I was like, you know, I met the guy, you know, from the monkeys. I was like, what a joke, what a trip, you know. Casey and the Sunshine Band, you know, all kinds of acts that were, yeah, just always around. So how long did it take you to write your books? I'm always interested in how long it takes people to write. How many pages are there in your book? Well, the page, how many pages? I've got about a hundred and... 50, just right around 150 pages. And um, I wrote the book with a ghostwriter. And then we kind of let it sit for a little bit. I was, you know, a decent bloke. I had my ex, you know, business partner. <laughs> it sounds funnier that way. You know, go ahead and look it over. And we kind of tweaked it out for her. So it, it would seem nice. And then I went back at it and then we published it. So it was a few months, you know, I would say about six months. We initially did it pretty quickly within, you know, a couple of weeks. And then, um, and just thought about it and made some, tweaked it out, kind of. So did you write the first draft and complete the first draft in six months? Or did you get your book published in six months, the final version in six months? Um, we ha- probably had the draft in a few weeks. Wow. But then we also had a lot of people reading it, and bloody hell, I mean, you, on, on my first conversion, you know, on the dedication, and yeah, they forgot to obviously catch it, or on the download into the publishing, they missed your instead of you, you father, your father, it's your father, because I was dedicating it to my daughters. And so it was more like a New York term. Yo, you father. <laughs> you know, it's pretty funny. But we did fix that. You know, and you can buy the book Injustice on Amazon. You know, that's we're we're in there. So it's really, uh, I think, a good read. It starts off with me being a little bloke in in the Bronx, New York, and it starts off kind of dramatic with. Because they gave, I was born in 1959, so my mom and I were given last rights right from the get-go. Hello. Yeah. And so then um, I go, there's some kind of fun stories in there growing up in New York. And we lived, my father had to transfer into Puerto Rico for 11 months, so that was interesting. There was no Mark Anthony and J-Lo in 1971, so it was not... <laughs> You know, it was Puerto Rico is a lot different, you know. If you're coming from New York, you're like, you know, it's just forget it. You know, you're not, you know, it's the island. So um, so then we moved back to the States. We moved to Florida. And then since the early 70s, I've lived in Florida, traveled all over the world. But I, Florida is really the sunshine state. It seems to be really nice. Yeah. from my cup of tea at least yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm curious though like how did you publish your book i always ask this question i always like to know how people do theirs well i used uh, a good uh now a good friend and and help self-publish okay. so self-published and then um 
Yeah, it was uh, just setting it all up and following the instructions. And they helped along with that. They have their own kind of business to do that. And it really was uh, interesting because, you know, when you're writing something like that, non, you know, something that's your life, it definitely is an interesting road as opposed to writing fiction or something that um, is not, you know, reality. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got all these connections in Hollywood. Why did you choose to self-publish rather than go with a publisher, for instance? Mm, I just, I don't know. I just felt like doing it that way. You know, there's not, um, it was kind of at a, a friend said, well, you should write a book. So I just hooked up with a company and did it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. So what are the main things you've learned from publishing your book? Like what skills? Because I think when you go into a new venture, you always learn something new. Or I think everybody should try and see what they learn from that new process. So what are the things that you've learned, you know, from, you know, going through this process of everything that's happened, basically? Well, in the book, as far as like writing the book, um, just, you know, going over things and over and just making sure. And then, you know, because also not only is it an, um, you know, my life story, but there's also things that we put in content in there in research after the fact that, you know, not knowing of, you know, because the last 10 years are a little, we will call it spicier with the, um, because of the, the, transcontinental Lou Perlman's business relationship. So in finding out later on that, well, number one, um, the government knew that it was a Ponzi. You know, they knew that Perlman had a Ponzi, but they didn't shut him down. Um, I might be saying that too harshly, but they definitely had, you know, information that it was, but it was obtained, you know, how things are. It has to be done with a warrant or something like that. Because at the time there was Charlie Crist, who used to be the attorney general, they had in his office had an investigation on his office in, in transcontinental and they stopped all abruptly. And, um, I think if they would have hung out there a little longer, they obviously would have had everything that they needed to bring it down. And years later, that's when we shut it down. We put him in prison. I don't know if you're aware that Lou Perlman passed away over two years ago in prison. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. But we were still dealing with you know, fallout. And, and that's the, like I said earlier, I kind of re go back to the book is, you know, to clear our me, you know, my name because, um, in business and everything, Oh, that's the guy that was involved with that Ponzi and this and that. So you kind of have to deal with your living in a glass house, a bubble and people are, you know, it doesn't matter, friends, family, what have you. We've had 
like federal, the Federal Bureau of Investigations were investigating us. So that means they went around to our colleagues and business associates. And as a little twister after the interview, they said, you shouldn't maybe hang out or do business if it was a business associate with these people, meaning my ex-wife and myself, because, you know, they're kind of, you know, involved with this thing. I would, you, I would, if I were you, I would think about it. Kind of like propaganda, like, you know, Nazi propaganda, you know, back in the, you know, kind of destroying your credibility. And yeah. So, yeah, it's not, not a good thing. So we, um, you know, survived all of the different government agencies and we never had to, there were a lot of people that went to prison, but we were not, we weren't given any immunity or anything like that. They went ahead and just kind of investigated and, you know, nothing, nothing came of it. And, but it definitely cost a lot of money in the States to defend, I probably in Britain as well, to defend yourself, even if you're innocent. You know, yeah. I think, I think if we didn't have, we would have probably had problems, you know, with going to jail or something like that. I always refer back to Cheech and Chong, you know, when Cheech sold a bong to in a state of New York where it's illegal, I, I, I don't know, North Carolina, South Carolina, they put him in prison for that war jail. And when they were in, I think, um, was it uh, Cinemax did a reality thing with him. And when he got out of jail, they said, oh, so what did you think about being in jail? He said, there are a lot of innocent people in there, you know, and he wasn't kidding because you can't, if you don't have the means to, you know, represent, have good representation in courts, guess what? C'est la vie, you know, it's, it's not always, you know, it doesn't work out, you know, and you see that, and you see that corruptly in the media right now. I think in the States we have some scandalous things going on right now and it involves money because, you know, the pretense of, let's face it, if you have an, a lot, if you get the best attorneys, if you get the, you're, you can get a lighter sentence or what have you. So it's really a tough gig. And they did give us like a immunity after the fact. I mean, we were already in divorce, you know, that was, like I said, the biggest thing. And so um, we were already kind of separate and they give us this immunity and they were asking us questions. You want to, you want to know what the government asked us? They said, well, do you think that Lou Perlman would have lied in regards to, you know, such and such and such, you know, about the Ponzi? And we were like, of course. And because they had a case against somebody that wound up, having an investor come in and invest while I guess the investigation was going on hmm. and that fellow wound up going to jail and losing his marriage and children. And hmm. It's interesting we, you mentioned that, you know, if you don't have money, you know, um, and you needed to defend yourself, you would go to jail because I never actually understood that only until recently. Right. Cause a lot of times I'm on Cora, right? It's one of those not as popular, quote unquote, social media sites. And someone asked that question. And then I was reading through the comments, right? And I thought, interesting. And I could then see how or why 
you've got so many people in jail, right? So the comments that some people have made was that public defenders, they have over 100 cases, but they only get maybe 15 minutes to go through each person's case. Right. So you can imagine if you only have 15 minutes to look through someone you need to defend, 15 minutes is not even enough to write the notes, let alone defend the person. Right. It's a, it's a, you know, a slam dunk for the prosecutor, for the government. You know, it's just boom. You know, it's easy because you have an ill, you know, unprepared um, attorney on the other side. And they usually kind of plea bargain, you know, I don't know how it is in Britain, but they talk, the attorneys talk and they, you know, so it's, it's important to have an attorney that's prepared and, you know, for your case and understands the, you know, the relevance and the depth. And so actually we, we had many attorneys, you know, because they came after us in all different kinds of ways. So yeah, it was really the, the, the shocking part in that uh, whole investigative part was when my wife and I, Charlotte, were in, um, we had gotten letters and we went put our girls to bed and we were in our bedroom and we opened up Target letters and it was titled, you know, you are the subject of a target from the Federal Bureau of Investigations. That was like, and yeah. all kinds of things. It's like, I don't know if you've heard Vertigo, like all oh, the everything is spinning you're just like we were obviously crying wondering your imagination goes all over the place you yeah. who's gonna you're thinking oh that's it we're going to prison we're whatever even though we were innocent you're just like you're freaking out you know who's gonna raise our children this Ooh. that you know we're you know that's how it is in life typically you when you have you come against something in you know your mind goes all over the place. Yeah. And, um, and so with my, you know, for over a decade working in these different countries, Latin American countries or Latin countries yeah. that uh, are less as fortunate as us in the States or in Britain. And, um, you know, helping people out is really a big thing. Um, you wind up getting more benefit from it because I, I, I kind of resolved <laughs> that it's very kind of selfish because I have, you know, all kinds of things I can go back and think about or the different wells and people that I've touched and help regarding their improving their life um, and their families for the rest of their life, you know, with water. And we did a lot of work with agriculture. And in Nicaragua, it's not like you, we have a social system. You know, we had people that had never seen a physician in their life. Oh. And so um, when we went to see them, it was, they were just so grateful and thankful. And so there's a lot of faces I have in my head you know, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know if it wasn't for the Lou Perlman debacklement and all this Ponzi thing. If in searching for answers, I don't know if I would have done what I did and have done and am doing, you know, being involved in helping others in 
these countries, and I do some work here in the States, you know, helping people out here too as well. But the, um, I, you know, honestly, at least I'm being honest about it. I don't know if that would have been my path unless this crisis, this catastrophic event hadn't arisen, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. Well, it's come to that time of the day where I actually do have to kick you out of the cafe. My God, we're going to kick me out of the... I didn't finish my scones. I didn't <laughs> finish my scones. <laughs> well, you had so much time, you know. And you're like me, you know, we do like the sound of our voice, don't we? Um, actually, I really don't. I think it's... I, I think I sound really odd, you know. But you have a very nice voice with that hay fever and everything. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll take that as a very underhanded comment. That's how I'm going to look at it. Well, I hope it's positive underhanded. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, let me see if someone will leave a comment and say what I sound like, right? Do you think it's a nice hay fever, bunged up, congested voice? Because I think I sound weird as well. You know, I don't know you as any other way. <laughs> true, true, true. But, okay, if you go, and I feel like most of the times I'm recording, I'm always bunged up. So if you go and check any of my shows, any of the previous ones, and see if you can find one episode where I'm not congested, you can do a comparison then and let me know what you think. <laughs> That's whole. I will. You have now, to do it now. Now, what happens if I come back and say, oh, you know, you're really pretty, kind of have a sexy voice congested. <laughs> you're a weirdo. <laughs> well, we're Americans. We are kind of weird over here on the other side of the pond. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but no, seriously, it is that time of day where I really do have yes. to kick you out of the cafe. You know, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Yeah. Yes, thank you for having me. And hopefully sometime again, you know, you will come and you will tell us about all the exciting things that you've been up to. And hopefully I will learn some investment terms. Go and learn about investment. I like learning about investment. <laughs> Good. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to Robert. Um, oh, I almost forgot. If someone wants to find out more about you in your book, are you on Twitter? Do you have a website? How can they do that? Yes, I have a um, a website, and that is um, injustthebook.com, and that'll have that. Can you spell that, please? Oh, wait, here. It's um, N-J-U-S-T-I-C-E the T-H-E-B-O-O-K, and that should do it for the website, and that'll show you the link you know, Amazon, they give you like a little bit of the book in the beginning as well, if you just go to Amazon as well, so that you can read a little bit of the book, and that'll give you a little bit of that. Also, if um, on Facebook, Robert Thor, I have some items there, and it's just Robert Thor, T-H-O-R, and um, Thor is my middle name. I just um, have had to use it these last few years because of the bloody Ponzi, you know, if you do Oliver, my surname, it, you know, has junk on there. So with business, I found using my middle name is 
so that's a part of it. You know, the book is a part of going through that, you know, and getting that there. So um, I have a good presence in Facebook. So if you, you do that, you'll see all kinds of sh photos and, and hopefully I'll have you on there. Voila. Oh, me? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not very active on Facebook. Twitter is my home. Twitter is where I nose about and listen to gossip. Aha. Twitter's the place. Twitter oh. and Cora, right? Like, people always ask these random questions, and it always brings a smile to my face. Right. And then YouTube. I have a YouTube that's really popular. If you go there, that, that'll be really good. And let me give you that. It's, um, I've had over 22,000 <laughs> views on that. Okay. So um, I'll give you that. Um, that If you look up con man Lou Perlman. Hmm. Okay. So that's, and that'll be, um, that'll, you'll see an interview with um, uh, me. This is just from a couple of months ago. And. It's kind of casual, like cafe. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, in my kitchen. <laughs> I'm being interviewed in my kitchen. And I'm, coincidentally, you'll see my cappuccino in my hand every once in a while. It's only like 15 minutes. And it's gotten some good, you know, some thumbs ups, you know, almost 100 thumbs ups. And over 20, like I said, over 22,000 views in the last couple of months. So check it out. Awesome, awesome. Right, well, ladies and gentlemen, hope you found, you know, um, Thor, and I, oh, in my mind, I was like, who names his child Thor, right? But <laughs> <laughs> It's actually Tua. The O has a line above the O, so it's like Tua de France. We're uh -huh. French, so we, yeah, so they have, um, it's a little different of a name, yeah. Where is it from? I, I was obviously from the north, but I think it's, um, you know, just, you know, my mom, she liked it. So, c'est la vie, what am I going to say? It wound up being, it was before though, I was born in 1959. So there was no cartoons or anything like that, or movies that, you know, it was different back then, <laughs> you know. Ah, okay. Well, Just it's all right. But <laughs> yeah. no, seriously, right? We need to go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you laugh. We can talk until like tomorrow, right? So, yes, Absolutely. we can go and we will hopefully, since we like chatting on the show, you can come back again. See, it's yeah. good you to go away so you can come back another time. Yes, like the rain. Rain, exactly. go away. Come back another day. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. We are on the same page. Ladies and gentlemen, see you next time on the Shagilala Salami Show. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye.